Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. In this episode, my special guest is Will Travers, OBE, best known as the president of the Born Free Foundation. Will is also an accomplished director, writer, broadcaster, and animal rights activist. From a family of famous conservationists, Will offers his own insights, which are as inspiring as they are educational. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'd like to welcome you and everyone to the next Ecoflix podcast, and I'm very excited to introduce you today to a dear friend and an amazing human being, Will Travers. Will, how are you? I'm fine, David. Thank you for that very generous introduction. Well, I haven't done anything yet because uh, the world has to hear more. Obviously, you're the co-founder and president of the Born Free Foundation, Born Free USA, and the Species Survival Network. And I have to tell you, you have long been one of my most trusted barometers of right and wrong when it comes to the animal world. And so I've very much appreciated your guidance over the years. And I hope uh, everybody else gets a sense for why you are such a special voice for animals. Um, (laughs) But let me start by talking about uh, the Species Survival Network. Can you tell people a little more about what that is? I'm not sure it's as well understood or generally known as Born Free Foundation. Sure. Well, you know what? Um, the illegal wildlife trade is worth somewhere in the order of 27 billion US dollars a year. And the legal wildlife trade runs into trillions of dollars a year. It's, you know, trading in the world's natural resources, fauna and flora is very, very big business. And to manage that, there is a convention called the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES for short. And I first attended a CITES meeting when, together with many others, the Environmental Investigation Agency and others, we we were fighting to end the ivory trade. And that was back in 1989. I went to my first meeting. I had no clue what was going on. Uh, It's hugely confusing. And at that time, there were about 90 countries that were members of the conventions. This is a UN convention, you you know, to be, to have, to carry a vote, you have to be a country, but you can also be an observer. So I was an observer and this thing happened and the vote was approved and the international trade in ivory, it didn't completely disappear, but it was certainly not back. And then I thought, well, this is a really important forum, but I don't see how we can make it work um, and how we have an influence. And I went to my next meeting in 1992 and I thought exactly the same thing. I thought, this is very, very complex and difficult. And here's little me and born free. And what are we doing? 
But at that meeting, I had conversations with a number of other groups, and we were all in the same situation. We all felt kind of powerless in the face of this huge amount of trade, all these countries, and the pro-trade people who were there in force. So by 1994, we decided we needed to come together and we needed to act in a united way. And so we formed this uh, little organization, seven, seven collaborative organizations at the time called the Species Survival Network. Um, and I was asked if I would chair the board and if I would be the president of the network. And I said, well, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm very happy to help if I can. Anyway, long story short, we are now 90 organizations strong and I'll be going to COP19. So I've been to every conference of the parties since 1989, and I'm going to the next one in Panama in uh, November this year, and I will be representing and supporting in equal measure probably around 100 SSN delegates from probably 45 of our member organizations who'll come along. Range of expertise, an extraordinary arrangement array of talent lawyers who really understand what's going on with trade you know species specialists trade specialists people who understand seahorses and butterflies and and trees and lions and elephants and rhino you know we have incredible talent on display and what we do as the ssn is we produce a digest it's an analysis of all the proposals that are up for discussion and there are a lot of proposals this time. This is about how to bring either more or less protection to a species that's in trade. And there'll be proposals from a country that says, well, you know, we've got plenty of this. So we need to reduce the level of protection and increase the availability of trade. And then there are others where the direction of travel is the opposite and the species in, is in desperate need of greater protection. And we'll produce our analysis of every proposal and then we will advocate for it. And I'll be there for two weeks with colleagues and two and a half thousand delegates. And, and I know we all talk about, you know, traveling around the world and, and trying to reduce our carbon footprint. And I am 100% for that. So, for example, in the last two and a half years, I've taken one flight. Um, this year, I took that one flight and I'll take one more. And it will be to Panama because I can't advocate and argue for wildlife and against the exploitation of trade unless I can look the guy in the eyes and say, is that the right decision? You want to trade rhino horn? You want to trade ivory? And then talk to others and say, you know, when it comes to the vote, here are the facts. And I hope that you will read our digest and I hope that we've helped in some way help you reach a decision, a wise decision about what happens to the world's wildlife, not the who can make the fastest buck off the last animal. Yeah, it's incredibly important work. And I think that uh, it's such a reflection, frankly, of where we are in the world today, that there is even a discussion about things so fundamental. Uh, the idea that people aren't worried. In fact, there's a premium on the value of killing the last animal as opposed to the reverse. Uh, it's, it's really quite stunning, but let's go backward in time for a second. I, you know, you have an interesting history. Um, 
how is it exactly that you came to commit your life to animal causes? Uh, everybody has their own ways of arriving at things like that. You had options. What did you consider and how did you decide to go in this direction? Hmm. Well, um, I was just lucky because my mom and dad were the actor and actress in the film Born Free in the 1960s. And as a young child, five years old, I went to Kenya in 1964 and lived there with them for a year while they made the movie. And um, we all got smitten by wildlife. And, you know, I met Joy Adamson briefly. I met George Adamson as a five-year-old. And even at that age, I something must have clicked. I must, I must have had a predisposition towards conservation. Explain who and, the Adamsons are for people who might not know. Oh, well, they, they were the a couple who um, released Elsa the lioness, trained her to live like a wild lioness again and released her into the wild. They'd, they'd taken her on board as, a, as an orphan. Um, George was a game warden and he'd been in a particular area where um, there was a man-eating lion and, and he'd been sent, as was his duty at the time, to shoot the man-eater, and he did so. And then he was charged by a female lioness out of nowhere, an almost knee-jerk reaction. He shot her before she got him. And then he realized there were three cubs, and little cubs. And um, long story short, uh, two of the cubs went off to zoos. But Joy said, can't we just keep the smallest and maybe try something that no one's tried before? which is to successfully return a lion cub to a wild and free life. And all the authorities said it was madness. It, it couldn't happen. They kept giving them a bit more time and a bit more time. But ultimately, they succeeded. And George wrote diaries, and then Joy wrote her book, Born Free. And then Born Free was optioned by Columbia. And, uh, and my mum and dad were asked to play the parts of Joy and George and, and retell that story for the for the cinema. And it was a big success. I mean, no question about it. It was one of the, the films of 1966 when it was uh, released. Right. And it's an inspiration, you know, even just in the name. Uh, I think many people ha have some sense of that, even without truly knowing the history. So I appreciate you going back over that. But back to your options and your good luck, as you call it. That, that isn't enough for me. You had a lot more than luck. You you were exposed. You maybe loved wildlife, but many, many, many people love wildlife and don't do a damn thing about it. So how did you end up actually dedicating your life to it as opposed to becoming uh, an accountant or a doctor or whatever? <laughs> yeah, well, I was probably I was so rubbish at maths. I would never have made it as an accountant whom I admire. Um, but I... Um, so, you know, I did my usual schooling stuff. When I left school, I was a, quite adventurous. So I did a couple of trips across the Sahara. I drove from London to Nairobi with three friends, um, always sort of close to nature and things like that. And, um, and then uh, my dad, while he had continued to act after the film Born Free, he also started to make wildlife documentary films. And so I worked with him in his company to to distribute those films. So I was a film distributor for a few years. And then one day, mum and dad got a letter from Daphne Sheldrick, the late, great Daphne Sheldrick, who has 
has the elephant or had the elephant orphanage uh, near Nairobi, which is now run by her mm. daughter, Angela, um, the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Right. And she said, you know, that elephant that you worked with in a film in the 60s that went to London Zoo, I've got information that they are going to destroy this elephant. Holy poly, her name was, slowly, slowly in Swahili, um, because she's become, quote, difficult to manage. And mum and dad had not been up to London Zoo to see her for 10 years because they'd been in a film with her. Sadly, at the end of the film, she was given to London Zoo as a gift by the Kenya government of the day. And mum and dad thought, look, she's got to make new friendships. She's got to make new alliances. If we keep going and seeing her, you know, it'll, it'll be very, very distressing for her. So they didn't see her for 10 years. They then went up and they went to the edge of the elephant enclosure, which is a moat. And she's at the back and they call her name. And she comes down and she reaches out her trunk. And there's an amazing picture of her trunk and my dad's hand touching across the moat after 10 years. And she, we campaigned for her to be returned to Africa. And we found a place that would take her and people who would carry out the operation, but the zoo were quite intransigent and they said no. But they said that they would move her to another zoo where there were at least some other elephants and the enclosure was bigger. The move didn't work out, it failed. She damaged a leg. Um, she stayed at the London Zoo for a week, hobbling around, and then uh, they gave her an anesthetic to check on her leg and she didn't respond and she died. And we, it was sort of national press. It was media everywhere. And we sat quietly one evening and we were just sort of saying, is that it? You know, we, we've sort of shouted and, and railed against the injustice of it all, but now maybe we just go back and do more acting and film distribution. And he said, well, or, or do we not? Do we do something different? Do we try and represent the voice of elephants and other animals in zoos? Because who's looking at zoos? So we called ourselves Zoo Check, and we sort of said, if no one wants to support us, then then in, in 10 days' time, we'll go and do something else, you know, with our lives. And actually, lots of people wanted to support us. And the director of London Zoo said, you'll just be a nine-day wonder. And 38 years on, here we are. And, and he's the one wondering. We yeah, and we were volunteers, and, and, and you know, I worked as a volunteer for the first two years and then took a part-time salary as the only, along with um, a friend, uh, Tricia, and we were the first salaried people at, at ZooCheck, which became the Born Free Foundation. And then today, you know, we continue to work on captivity issues, on conservation issues. We have about 45 people here in the UK, 60 people in Ethiopia, um, 40 people in Kenya, uh, 20 people in South Africa, another 20 in uh, in America through our sister organization, Born for USA. And, and we, we do policy, we do welfare, we do rescue and care, we do conservation, we do education and communities. We just try and do everything we can to make it better. And you certainly are, because uh, there's so many people that recognize the good and the concept of Born Free that I think that it's probably like the gateway drug to people coming into the animal movement. They kind of get intoxicated from 
the great work you're doing and it ends up in people expanding in their own ways and doing their own things in a positive way. So <laughs> it's been a hugely positive source of inspiration, I think. But it, it is a time really where uh, inspiration's in some short supply. Optimism is waning in many ways. And first of all, is your life a source of joy? I mean, do you love what you're doing? Yeah, I do. Um, and every day, something, some new challenge arises, some new opportunity arises, some new um, thing that I, you know, want to fight against because I think it's it's damaging. And but at the same time, I look at, for example, young people today. And you're right. We live in this time where inspiration is in, in incredibly short supply, uh, and it's very worrying. It's a very divided world that we live in. The disparity between the poor and the and the well-off has never been wider. Um, politics has become truly tribal. You know, it kind of doesn't matter whether the guy makes sense. If he's wearing the right color flag, you'll support him, whatever he or she says. That makes no sense to me at all. Um, I'm looking for positive solutions to problems. Uh, and I'd, you know, and I'll have dinner. I'll have dinner with whomever can deliver those positive solutions because we've got to have a practical agenda as well. And I see that frustration, um, David, with all these young people today who can see that there is something really, really wrong with the way that we run our world. Um, you know, a million species facing extinction, uh, oceans clogged with plastic, the air clogged with with the fumes of vehicles and industry and airplanes and the rest of it. And we and we recognize that. And those kids, they they can see what's wrong. They raise their voices against it. And it seems to fall on deaf ears. And it's their future that they're dealing with. I mean, I'm of a certain age and I, you know, it's it's not too late for me to do anything, but my clock is ticking fast. Whereas a 18-year-old looking forward to the next 50, 60 years, you could be forgiven for despairing because the pace of destruction is still far outstripping the pace of positive reform. And we don't seem to have the leadership that truly gets it, that truly understands it. This isn't something that we can go well, we'll do a little bit now and then we'll do a little bit and thing and we'll have a, well, we'll reach a target in 2050. In 2050, it will be too late. Some you say know, it's too late now. Some say it is too late now. I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist in, in as much as that if we all put our shoulder to the wheel today, then turning it round in the next eight years, which I think is the critical time period, I think that that is possible. But we've got a huge human footprint on the planet, a diminishing wildlife footprint and wild spaces footprint on the planet. We've got, you know, industrial agriculture that is not designed to be sustainable and long term. Uh, we have massive, I, I can't even begin to say how many animals are raised in accelerated farming techniques to be slaughtered in their billions every year for human consumption. I cannot talk about the extent to which the Amazon rainforest has been converted into soil of which 80% goes to feed animals and not people. 
it, it's not like we can't solve it. We just don't have the equity. We don't have that sense of, of balance. And I'll, I'll give you this statistic, which I, I'm frightened by this statistic. It's about wealthy people. Uh, and I, I have no problem with wealthy people. I, I sort of have more of a problem with what they do or don't do with their wealth. I don't begrudge them being wealthy. But we have about 2,700 billionaires in the world. And they have a combined wealth of just under $14 trillion. That is the same as the annual GDP of the United Kingdom and France put together. And at the same time, we have 1.6 billion people on the planet surviving on less than $1.90 a day. And you want to know why people are frustrated and why there is that kind of uh, the risk, the massive risk that exists that those people at some stage will say, enough, I am not prepared to forfeit my future and my opportunities so that a tiny number of people can live this exorbitantly luxurious lifestyle. So if we don't sort it out in a more fair and equitable way, you know, in my view, it's only going to end up in tears. Well, you know, there are two ways to look at this. Uh, and some often call it the glass is half full, glass is half empty. But I would prefer to think of it in terms of my own view, which is the starfish story, you know, saving one at a time. And I think that there's a limit to what any one person can do, which is, of course, why we need to band together. But there is a whole other problem which involves increasing human population. You've got a planet with 80 billion people producing some incredible number of new net people a day. I think it's something like 20,000 people net per day. Uh, are being added. And this is entire countries of population every year that are being added to the point where if we are living off the land, there's pretty likely to be no land left to live off of. So the question really is, is this problem solvable without changing the trajectory of humanity? Literally, I mean, moving us back to the role where we would be in balance with nature, few enough people that we can start to return to a balance. It's like the world full of the oceans full of megalodons that are predators. And on the planet, there's about 500 Tyrannosaurus rexes running around and there's nobody who can defend against them. So they just clean off everything. There's no balance to the ecosystem. All predators, no balance. That's sort of my view of what people are today. We're rapacious. We don't even think about trying to keep things in balance. So how do you see turning the world of people around so that the world of oxygen, let alone animals and the rest of the flora and fauna, have a chance of surviving? That's a good question. I mean, I, I subscribe to the um, to the thirty percent rule, you know, which is ob objective, which is to try and 
secure 30% of the world's terrestrial surface, and I would say 30% of the world's marine surface, as protected areas. Now, that doesn't mean fortress conservation necessarily, keeping people out entirely, but it means making sure that any human activities in those areas are, are compatible with, uh, with wildlife and wild spaces. Um, those, those are the kind of, that, you know, like the forest, the lungs of the world. Those are the places where nature goes to recover, goes to thrive. Um, and we, you know, from a, both a psychological, spiritual and a practical sense, we, we need nature. As far as the human population is concerned, I hear what you say about numbers, but you know, I think it's a more complex issue than, than the numbers. Um, yes, we have, you know, pushing 8 billion people on the planet. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and it's likely to go up to around 11 billion before it flattens out. Um, now, that, it's, it, the number is worrying, but what is actually in a sense more worrying is that the uh, consumption of raw materials that are used to power our lives, particularly our lives in the West, um, runs at about eight or nine times the base level. So a, a child born today in Tanzania, for example, will use about one ninth of the natural resources and the resources of the planet when compared to a child born in uh, the USA, about one eighth of, the, of a child born in the UK or Germany. So the disbalance between the use of natural resources is also profound. We also know from research that um, if, uh, if a family can be brought up with a meaningful quality of life, those very large extended fam families that uh, were very common in the United Kingdom, for example, only 100 years ago, uh, where people would have seven, eight, nine children, um, are replaced by families that have two children or three children or one child or no children um, because they are able to, the parents are able to visualize a future where those few children can have a, a, a good life, a prosperous life, and look after them in their old age rather than I have to have nine kids because three are going to die in childhood and the remaining six are going to have to look after me because there's no there's no care provided by the state, which I have basically paid my taxes into for the last 40 years. So I think it's quite a complex situation. And, and you know what gives me real hope, David, is that I look at a country like Kenya, where when the film Born Free was made, there were about nine million people living in Kenya. Today, there are 55 million people living in Kenya. So you would have thought that they would have swept everything before them. But you know, because uh, we met at a, at a small airfield in, uh, in Kenya not that long ago, a few years ago. Not uh, the first time, I might add. <laughs> no, that was not the first time, but with your lovely family. And, um, and uh, you know that in Kenya, since 1989, the number of elephants has doubled. The number of rhino has trebled. The number of lions between 2010 and 2021 has gone up by gone up by 25%. That's against the background of that very large growth in the human population. And what that tells me is that with really good management and real insight, it is possible 
for hu large human populations to share the space with wildlife, but we have to put in the, the thinking power and then we have to put in the policies and then we have to resource it and implement them. Yeah, it's such a great point. And I think that it is a good example of how looking at the glass half full gives you the opportunity to find the solutions. If you look at everything from a pessimistic point of view, you'll see pessimism and reason for it. And so I, I love talking to you about things like this because you usually find the, the positives in them. Do you have a sort of a regular mantra that you use to keep yourself focused on the positives or it's just as it comes by? Honestly, it's take every win. That's all, that's all, in a sense, all I can ever do. And it doesn't matter whether it's a big win. Like, for example, you know, I think, I'm touching wood here, my desk. Uh, I think that the United Kingdom is likely to bring in a trophy hunting import ban um, sometime before the end of the year, keeping my fingers crossed. I think that the United States is going to uh, enact the um, um, Big Cat Public Safety Act that those would be like big wins. I, I'll take those every day. Or it could be a little tiny thing, like we got a you know four small wildcats out of a out of a, a, a zoo or a circus and got them to a sanctuary, which is you know just four little lives, a bit like your starfish. Those four little lives, but goodness me, it makes a difference for those animals. And your glass half full thing. You know what happens if you're a if you're a pessimist and you go glass half empty. You focus all your attention on, in a sense, trying to stop it getting even emptier. Whereas if you're a glass half full person, you go, I wonder if I could get that to be a bit more than half full. I want to push it up as opposed to I want to stop it going down. No, I love that. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet. But this is a special year for Born Free. My background is... Uh, designed to reflect that. Why don't you uh, tell folks about your push for the year for Born Free? Yeah, it's 2022. So we're, we're calling it the year of the lion. Um, lions overall, as I've said, you know, in a perilous state across much of Africa, that little nugget of good news in Kenya just keeps me, keeps me going, keeps me hoping that we can turn things around. But 20,000 lions across the whole of Africa is is pretty much a disaster. But we've called it 2022 Year of the Lion um, because we want to draw attention to lions in captivity, against canned hunting in South Africa, pro-conservation and all the rest of it. But at the same time, my dear dad, who passed away in 1994, he would have been 100 this year, and he was a real lion of a man. And so we thought no more fitting tribute to 2022 than to mark what would have been his 100th year by calling it Year of the Lion. And he was a, a, a man with very, very sort of interesting background, really, um, because he kind of missed out on his youth. Um, he joined up uh, in, in the army when he was really quite young um, because it was the Second World War. And he was posted up to the northwest frontier um, on the border with Afghanistan. And then he joined what was called um, the Long Range Penetration Group, which is a, was an airborne division that was dropped by parachute into um, what was then Malaysia, uh, where he fought with uh, 
Chinese communists uh, behind the lines. And then sort of finally, he was one of the first people to go into Hiroshima after the bomb. And he never he never talked about the war uh, and he never wrote anything down in a diary except for about four pages that we found after he had passed on. And they were only about his experience in, in Hiroshima. And it was quite clearly beyond question the most traumatic experience that he could imagine. And this is a guy who'd, you know, fought against the Japanese in the war, had had friends killed, tortured, taken into the camps, etc. And yet he felt that the the dropping of the bomb, this is his view, that the dropping of the bomb was an unforgivable act of of uh, brutality against a civilian population. And some will argue that it shortened the war. And, you know, I'm not a historian, so I'm not here to argue either case. But what I am saying is that a guy who witnessed what he saw was just couldn't get his head around the dropping of that bomb. It was one of the probably the most difficult choices ever made by a politician. I would I'm say. sure it was. I'm sure who you would never want to walk in those shoes. No. And it's interesting because we come from a similar background. My father from uh, America fought in World War II. He was a, a gunnery officer on a flagship, which carried the Admiral. He was at Iwo Jima, watched them put up the flag from the ship. And he got, he was in San Francisco on shore leave and got his orders to invade Tokyo Harbor, death, an absolutely suicide mission, just when the war ended. Uh, they were literally about to board the ship and he had a, a pith helmet and he never talked about the war either. And his pith helmet on the inner liner had a note of the year and location every time they crossed the equator on the ship. And it was solid with rings of wow. the years he spent on that ship. It's, um, you know, it's something that none of us in our generation really can fully appreciate. I mean, literally being uprooted and sent off to fight humanity instead of, you know, people now with their guns, they go off to hunt animals as if it's a hunt. You know, I, I think I would have no problem with hunting if guns were banned and they had to go out with knives, no bow and arrows even, just knives. Then it's a fair fight. And then I would say, okay, if you can kill something and eat it, or they kill you and eat you, I think it would change the balance. All of a sudden, Earth would go into stasis again because you'd have predators and prey. This is just a, a sham the way we we could sit in our car with high-powered scopes and kill animals, you know, so far away and we are not sure what, whether we hit them or not unless we see them drop. Yeah. It's just horrible. And Well, it's that, isn't it? It's the, the, the and, and, um, those who are in favor of trophy hunting like to try and portray those of us who are against it as being confused. Yeah. You know, well, poor you. You're, you're so confused. confused. I'll, I'll give you that much. And I say, well, I'm not that confused, guys. I mean, I know that there are three types of hunting. There's poaching and it's illegal. Period. There's subsistence hunting. You can call that what you want. You know, that's the... African man who or woman who has to go out and find something, whether it's a guinea fowl or a small antelope to feed the family. And if I was in their situation, I may be the same. It, it's probably not that different from the guy in upstate New York who uh, 
has a deer a deer license and goes and kills a, a mule deer and then you know stores the meat and feeds off that for the winter or whatever and then there's the trophy hunter the guy who by dint of his or her wealth is able to travel halfway around the world to exclusively remove some of the most magnificent animals on the planet so that they can take ownership of the remains for fun. And they leave everything except the head usually or the feet or the claw. And then they'll say, oh yeah, well, I, you know, I gave the meat to the local people. You know, I call that the Marie Antoinette syndrome. You know, let them eat cake. Yeah. That's, that's not providing them with a future. Of course, it's providing them with some protein right then and there, although, you know, shooting lions doesn't provide protein because people don't tend to eat lions, etc. But nevertheless, you know, that's not, that's not how we should treat our fellow human beings as, I, I'm almost lost words, as sort of inferior to the extent that they can have the crumbs from our table, but they cannot sit at the table. Well, again, it goes back to the class warfare that you were talking about earlier and, you know, quite right. And I think, I think many times that, as you put it, people of privilege don't even realize how privileged they are because few of those people have actually built their own wealth. A lot of those people have uh, inherited it. And I think if you earn your own way and... You know, I've heard of many billionaires who refuse to give their children wealth because they want them to become their own people. They want them to grow their their own pathway, if you will. And, you know, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong to that, but I certainly hope that, you know, those who have been fortunate enough to have wealth would not only give some back, not as a gift, but as a way of moving collective humanity forward and doing things that make their lives more enriching to the planet. I mean, not everybody yeah. has that opportunity, but yeah, I'm a hundred percent, hundred percent with you on that. I mean, um, if, if you're lucky enough and it's just complete luck that you happen to be born into a wealthy society to a wealthy family, you inherit whatever, goodness me, you are blessed. And, and if you are truly a human and a humane being, then you'll you'll find a way of making life better for others, human or non-human, because that's kind of your obligation. You you were born with a silver spoon. Now make sure that you pass it forward. I would like to think so. And you know, to the extent that this podcast has some influence on people, if you can. Do the best you can. Why yeah. Not? Why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> Let me talk about another whole area of controversy, and, and that's zoos. Um, you and I have been around this subject a bit, and um, I can tell you that uh, I have very strong feelings on the subject, and I know you do too, but there, there may be a, a middle of the road. What, what is your thinking about why zoos are not the answer? And if not, what do you think the answer is? Well, David, you and I have been to, uh, to a zoo together and, and, and stood and watched the elephant in the new $40 million 
2.83 acre enclosure and, and observed the electrified reeds at the front that prevent the elephant from touching the water or the hot wires around the trees that prevent the elephant from touching the trees or the little patch of green in the middle that, yes, it's surrounded by hot wire as well. Um, you know, it, it kind of makes me... Welcome to the LA me, Zoo. Yeah, that'll be the LA Zoo. It kind of makes me, it makes me mad um, because it's such a waste. It's such a waste of effort, time, money, intelligence, resources, and everything else. You know, the natural world is crying out for support. The Kenya Wildlife Service in Kenya, responsible for 35,000 uh, elephants, 1,600 rhino, 2,500 lions, and every other species that lives across the continent, uh, the, the country of Kenya, um, has an operating budget of around 50 million US a year. And the little elephant enclosure at the LA Zoo, 40 million for three acres. 42. Seriously. 42. 42, 42 million, you know, and, and, they're, and they're still appealing for funds to, for, to support their minuscule education program somewhere in the Far East. It, it sort of is that sense of, of, a, of a waste of opportunity, time and resources. And it's not just about elephants. Um, you know, uh, the top uh, 20 enclosures built in zoos worldwide in the last 10 years have had a total value in the order of a billion dollars. That's how much it's cost to build those enclosures, to lock animals up for a quasi-pseudo-educational experience that is undermined by every wildlife film you ever watch on TV, undermined by what you see on Ecoflix when you see wildlife in the wild living as it should, and then you go to the zoo, doesn't matter which one, doesn't in a sense matter how much money they've spent or how they've tried to dress it up, but it's so unnatural, it's so separated from a sense of a, of an ecosystem with cohabiting species, all of which play a role in making that ecosystem function. It's like going to a living museum and watching living displays in a relatively static environment that's unlikely to change. Because I know, I mean, seriously, if you and I went to the LA Zoo every single day for a year, all 365 days, what would change? The weather... Not much. And I just said what would change. That's it. The weather. Because everything else is the same. The building's the same. The fence is the same. The hot wires are the same. The animals are the same. They're not going to breed because they're post-reproductive. It's, it's a living museum display. Well, that's, what, that's a way nicer description than I would provide. Because, first of all, Billy's not post-productive. Um, he, he's never bred because he's been you know, in an artificial environment without elephants of any kind for the most part. But I, you know, when, if you're talking about large mammals as we are with elephants, my biggest, you know, to me, it's such a fundamental, they don't have the physical space to be healthy. They need to move. Elephants are not made to be static. They can't stand in place. And in a small space like that, whatever amount they move, it becomes packed and hard and then their feet and legs develop abscesses and bone Ill illnesses and that's what they die from elephants in zoos don't thrive they die and so 
the answer is has to be different. Although elephants aren't the only species that suffers, they they may be the smartest and the biggest, which are the two most critical problems for animals in a zoo. It would be roughly like I think a human being in a closet with concrete barefoot. There is no television, no newspaper, no stimulation, just a lighted closet with a concrete floor and nothing else in it. You'd go mm -hmm. crazy. Your feet would hurt in, in a matter of minutes or hours. You'd, you'd have to sit down. You can't sit down on concrete forever. There's just nothing you can do to relieve yourself. Well, that's what elephants are like in a small space. Well, the elephants, primates, I would say dolphins, uh, you know, equally that blue okay. rinse, blue rinse concrete pool that is a fragment of the size of a fragment of their natural habitat that has nothing natural in it. There's no tide, there's no seaweed, there's no fish, there's no nothing. And it neither is, species could go back into the wild. Once they've been there for any period of time, they can't survive in the wild. Well, it, it, yes. I mean, I think we've shown that with dolphins, it's possible. Um, dolphins it's, have a better chance because they're it's, not as tribal yeah. as orcas. Orcas, they literally yeah, no, have their own language and their own environment. Very hard with orca. Elephant, you know, it's interesting that the, the guy in the UK who has the biggest number of elephants in his, in his zoo, uh, Damien Aspinall, he has 13 elephants which is about a quarter of all the elephants in zoos in the UK. He's taking his elephants back to Kenya. He's right. going to release them with the Sheldricks. Which is um, a perfect, perfect segue to talk about Pangaea. Well, yes. Uh, gosh, I'm glad you, you raised it because um, you were talking about space and how really restrictive space just deprives an animal of, of any choice, of any opportunity to perform um behaviors or to if a so it's a social species to to interact socially and to leave if they want to leave to be together if they want to be together all those things that you know make a rich life a life that an intelligent species an intelligent individual can can benefit from um, and there's a new report out that's been done by dr rob atkinson and dr keith lindsay looking at and speculating about the space that elephants would need in captivity, not to, to have a perfect life, but to have a life worth living. And they've, they, they postulate that about 100 hectares, which is about 240 acres, is the enclosure size that would give those animals those life choices. Assuming um, there's sufficient change in crops and food to eat and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And even in that space, as you know, David, it's, it's not possible to, to uh, for the animals to be completely self-sufficient. There would still need to be supplemental feeding. But, you know, an animal that doesn't want to be next to another one in that space can walk half a, half a kilometer, half a mile away and, and, and get some me time. An animal that wants to be friends and they can go off together and do something, but then split away and do something, they can. Uh, animal that wants to go over the hill so that they're out of sight of, of everybody. All of those choices are denied in the sort of standard one acre. You know, the smallest enclosure for an elephant in this country is a quarter of an acre. Same in the LA Zoo. They have and, that. 
They have that it's, acreage, but they divide it into quarters. Into small, into small pieces. And, it, and that's, that's profoundly depressing. So what we're proposing is that um, while the U.S. has two elephant sanctuaries, uh, the, the uh, Ark Pause. 2000 sanctuary pause in California and the Tennessee elephant sanctuary, there's one in Brazil, there's several in India, there's one in Cambodia that you're very familiar with. Mm. Um, there's uh, some in Thailand that we're also familiar with. There's no elephant sanctuary in Europe. We have 600 elephants in various forms of captivity in and Europe. And not all and of Europe is healthy for elephants because it gets so cold. It, that's true. So luckily, we have a diverse range of both uh, climate and topography. So we will. So what we're proposing is that we need to have um, a large-scale elephant sanctuary situated in southern Europe, in climate that is not too hot in the sun, summer, but certainly not too cold in the winter. Because what we don't want to be doing is forcing elephants to live indoors for you know weeks or months at a time because it's just too cold for them outside large enclosures minimum you know uh, um, 100 hectares 240 acres even that is an experiment that's not necessarily going to be the answer but because we haven't even tried it we don't know whether that sized enclosure in an interesting environment with you know trees and water bodies and meadow areas and the rest of it whether that delivers the kind of opportunity that elephants need to have a life worth living. But we couple that, Born Free does, no breeding, no imports. This is a long process of gentle, humane decline. And in 50 years time, when I'm long gone, hopefully there will be no elephants in captivity in Europe. And instead, we will have started to devote our resources and our time and our effort to protecting wildlife in its natural habitat, which, you know, all common sense ultimately tells you that the right place for wildlife is in the wild. So that's wow. where you put your time and your effort. There's no logic that says it should be anywhere else. You know, the minute you start to take animals out of the wild, because you have to have a captive breeding program, that you're losing the battle in the wild. Right. And that's where the battle needs to be won. Pangea, unlike zoos, is not a place, as you point out, to take them from the wild and put them on display. It's a place to take them from zoos and give them a halfway house back to the wild. Yeah, and some some elephants may be candidates for return to the wild. Most will not. There will be psychological issues. There'll be health and, and foot and obesity and all the rest of it. And so retirement in the best possible circumstances that we can devise is the option, not an option we have at the moment in Europe. And, and our determination uh, with others, the uh, Bardot Foundation and the Olsen Animal Trust, who are our partners in this, is to, is to look for that new opportunity. And I know that um, the land has been identified and um, there's some good work being done there and with hope, um, Pangea will come into being and it'll be the first alternative to zoos in the UK. It's pretty special in all of Europe. Well, I, I think it, I think it is um, transformative. And, and I, all I will say is it's pretty personal, too, because my mum is on it. She she said uh, yesterday, uh, and I tell you this is true. She said yesterday, 
we better get this place done before I'm no longer around because I'm very I want to see it happen. So I mean, I would say to uh, to anyone listening to this podcast, and we've talked about wealth and what one can do with it to create something lasting and positive and and amazing. Well, if you've got a few million dollars and you want to be part of this, then please get in touch because this is a reality that we can deliver. Well, um, we just need fantastic. to find the right people to help us. Please tell Virginia that I'm involved and uh, Ecoflix is behind it. And I certainly hope others will join us in that effort because it is a very important thing. I wish we had something more in the United States because of the size and the need. But uh, for Europe, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Portugal is your your choice. Yeah, Port Portugal's where we're looking because Portugal, some parts of Spain have the have the right criteria for elephants. You know, we didn't start by saying, where could we build a, a really nice facility for people? We said, where could we create something amazing for elephants? That's that's the priority. Yeah. So let me end with a couple of questions. First of all, what does Born Free need the most? What would you like people to know? And there's a range, obviously. If people could write big checks, that always helps. But, of course it does. But, but really, you need more from a lot of people than a lot from a few people. So what is it you'd like Born Free to tell the world that they really need to hear? What, is you, what do you need most? So I think, to be honest, I think what we need, and it sounds kind of facile, but I think what we need is change. And that's where every single citizen can put their shoulder to the wheel and they can help bring about that change by making sure that the people in Western democracies, at least, who represent us, represent our views and deliver our vision. If we want a world that cares for nature, cares for the oceans, cares for the climate, cares for people in need, cares for species on the brink, cares for conservation and, and welfare and doesn't exploit and abuse, then we need to we need to have people in position decision making positions who can deliver that for us and we need to get them there so i don't know whether it's you know having something on the ballot or it's a state resolution i mean i'm really enthused by that piece of legislation that i i mentioned before the uh, big cat public safety act um it got this fantastic shot in the arm from tiger king because we've been talking about the Big Cat Public Safety Act for years. I mean, I don't know, 2008, nine, we've been talking about it for 13, 14 years. And it's like, oh, God, it's reintroduced again and then reintroduced again. And then it doesn't make it. And, you know, we're back to square one, not quite, but nearly. And then along comes Tiger King, which, you know, was addictive, scary TV full of addictive, scary people. But the innocent victims throughout it were not the people. They were the animals. And I think it touched a chord in the public mind and in the viewers that said, that can't be right. It just can't be right. And the, that has translated now into real legislative momentum that's got it through Congress that's going to get it through the Senate, that's going to get it to the desk of the president and sign the legislation and let's make 
something good come out of something terrible. And I think if we could just see that writ large and see the things that we want for our planet, for our society, for our family and for ourselves as achievable objectives, but that can only be achieved when we work together to make it happen. That's the kind of community that I want to live in. So you asked me that question, what do I think Born Free needs? It needs change. And to make change happen, we need you. Yes, there's no question. Don't you think, though, unfortunately, at the moment, we are getting the politicians we deserve as a group, as a population. These are the people we've been voting for. Whether you like it or not, we're not promoting, we're not supporting the people who would make the change that you're, and I'm totally in agreement with you, that you're pointing out are the people we need. And that's because animals have seldom had the political draw that other issues, there's so many of them. And right now, today, it's tribalism, as you point out, um, almost no issues. It's more personality than it is issues. It's outrageous. But if I could, you know, augment slightly what, what you think Born Free needs, it's that we need to voice our values and put into office people who absolutely represent our values, starting yeah. with the planet and animals, because there's so much desperate need. There is going to be a point, you know it and I know it, that if we do nothing for much longer, we're going to have this doomsday moment and everybody's going to, who knew? <laughs> and of course, <laughs> we've known for a we've century. Known, and nobody's we've known for a long time. Yeah. We've known yeah. for a long I, do you know, I found the other day a cutting from a UK newspaper dated, I may get this wrong, 1916 or 1918. It's 100 years old. Right. And it talked about the impact of industry on the climate. And it said, you know, this could have a serious negative impact in a few hundred years. This is way before climate science. This is way before anyone was, you know, there was no grassroots movements. There was no Green Party. There were no, you know, environmental advocates. This was just someone writing in a, a British newspaper that what we're doing to the planet can, is going to come back and bite us. And it wasn't 200 years. It came back in 100 years because well. they couldn't foresee the, the rate of change. But, you know, we have known about this stuff for a long time, don't don't say we didn't, you know, people should not delude themselves. We didn't know. Well, we're still saying today, there's so many people today that are denying it. And because we have winters, they say global warming. What a hoax. <laughs> I mean, my God. Yeah, it's, it's the difference. There's a difference between weather and climate, but that's going to bite. That's going to go over uh, some people's it, heads. But the other thing is, David, I watched a show the other evening. I I, I, I watch uh, Al Jazeera. Um, I, I find it a fascinating channel um, coming out of, uh, of uh, Doha um, because it's very brave mm. and it, and it pro provides a long form platform to stories that just don't get told anywhere else. If you watch their news, Al Jazeera English, watch their news. It's truly is, news about the world we live in. It's not about, you know, a US centric view of the world. It's not about a British centric view of the world or a European one or an African one. It covers such an amazing range of stories. 
And one of the stories that I watched on there last night was about how um, money from, let's put it this way, I've got to be a bit delicate here, money from a large and influential pro-gun organization in the United States was being used to uh, influence the political arena in Australia. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know what? We are manipulated. We are, you said, we need to get people into power who reflect our values and our views. We also need to make sure that we're not allowing people, organizations, other governments to manipulate us so that we don't hear the truth anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was in Australia uh, for a period of time when they outlawed guns you know, rifles and the like, and yep. changed the face of Australia forever to being so much better than the United States, who just can't find the political will to do this fundamental thing. You walk around Texas now, and you think you're in the wild, wild west. Everybody's got a, a gun. It's open carry. And I don't want to be in places like that, because there's too many people with a bad hair day or a headache or, yeah. and God knows what happens as a result of that. But it's, I, it's very, I do it's, think it's very, it's very troubling. And, and, you know, again, just a statistic that I recall from last night, I think I'm right in saying the U S has somewhere in the order of 30 odd thousand gun related deaths a year. Well, the UK has a population that is about a fifth of the population of the United States. So pro rata, we should be talking about, say, 6,000 deaths, um, gun-related deaths in the UK. I'd be surprised if it's 150. Our gun control and our, our legislation and the background checks and everything that go with it, you know, it, Australia hasn't had one mass killing since that incident that took I place totally where they took a, where 600,000 guns were removed from circulation. Let me put it that way. All the messaging around guns don't kill people, people kill people, how ridiculous. I mean, I, I made a living out of using words and arguments, but this is not this is not politics or anything else. This is human lives. And the only good thing about it is it's keeping our population down a little bit. Uh, that's, that's a tough way to do it i would say i think no i think i think we have to find we have to find other ways of of cohabiting on the planet with with uh, all the rest of life on earth but so it just goes back to that central point you know if you want your values to be represented then choose people who represent your values and hopefully you have good values yeah and then my last question Forgetting the politics of it all, what should every human on this planet know regarding how to live their life more in harmony with nature, the way we should be doing it? What's the key message you'd like to impart how humans can better treat their planet? It's kind of a tough question, and it's a good one to end on. Um, I think that people have different levels of opportunity to, to sort of demonstrate their ability to live in harmony with nature. If you're scrabbling to survive 
in the slums of Delhi, I don't think you have the luxury of spending time wondering about how you're going to positively impact the planet you live on. But that isn't the case with all of us. And for those of us who do have the opportunity to reflect, I would say the very first thing you need to do is to ask yourself about your footprint, whether the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the green spaces that are near you, if you have a window box at, at your house or a little backyard, or maybe it's the local park, or maybe you happen to have more space than that. You know, what, can, what contribution can that little piece of nature do to the bigger picture of nature as a whole? The policies that you choose, I say the food you eat, the energy that you consume, the vehicle or the transport mode that you use. I mean, Born Free, at the start of the pandemic, we took a, a close look at what we were doing in terms of traveling to see our projects. We got projects in Ethiopia and Kenya and South Africa and India and all over the place. And we just took a decision. We just said, you know what? It's just not tenable to just say, oh, well, I'll just get on a plane and go there and take a look and I'll write a report and I'll come back and then I'll go back in four months time and I'll write another report. That's, that's massively inefficient and wasteful. So we've cut our travel by 75%, our air travel by 75%. Um, I have had the last two and a half years, I've been on one plane once. And I will go on one more because I'm going to that big CITES conference, the Convention on Trade, but I'm going to do that in, in uh, November. But that's it. And that's part of my personal audit of my life and how I, both how I live it and then, in a sense, how I should be living it. So I think that's what, what I would suggest that people do. Just take a, take a break. Think about your the way you live your life, the way you could live your life, and just see if there aren't those things, the cumulative impact of all those things that millions of people who might do that one change can have on the state of nature. Yes, I think that's a great, a great message. Educate yourself, and if you can do better, do better. Why not? Yeah. Like the expression... How can one person make a difference? Said at the same time by 10 billion people around the world. Yeah. If all of us just did a little bit better, it would have a massive impact. Will, it's such a delight always. And I am thrilled and I appreciate your supporting us with this podcast. I think it's a wonderful message to the world. And I hope we'll talk again soon. Well, David, it's such a pleasure to be on your show. And uh, I'm, as you know, I'm a big fan of EcoFlix. Um, I, I think it's the kind of it's the kind of thing we need, we desperately need, because we do need to reconnect. And uh, I, I wish you all the luck with it, and you have my support. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.